The following is still a pandemic recording presented to you in Around Sound. It was recorded with whatever was lying around. Hey, this is Lady Don't Take No, your weekly roundup of all of the real and none of the fake. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. This show is pro-Black, pro-queer, proudly feminist, and pro-do-what-you-like. Every week, you're going to get the best of what goes on in my head, what we loving on, and what we hating on, what we might be, and what we ain't going to do. Politics, pop culture, the failed immigration policy of the Biden administration that has Haitians being chased by police on horses with whips, we cover it all. This podcast is based in Oakland, California, the center of the known universe where we are dealing with Rona and reconstruction. It's a challenging time, a changing time, a time of transformation. It's all the things all the time nowadays, but we're going to help you understand the dynamics of this time every single week. So be sure to tune in, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We do it for the culture, so the pod is free 99 because we know that with a country in chaos, the least we could do is keep you from putting your money anywhere else than where it's needed. Boundless imagination, she bounced this idea off me, Jack. That had me out in space, somewhere just love, not knowing the way back. Our guest this week is a citizen of the Oglala Lakota Nation and the president and CEO of the NDN Collective an Indigenous-led organization dedicated to building Indigenous power. Prior to the NDN Collective, he founded and served as the executive director of the Thunder Valley Community Development Corporation for 12 years. This man has over 18 years of experience in working with nonprofits and tribal nations on projects that have a social mission. We are going to hear all about his good work today. Please, please, please welcome to the pod, Nick Tilson. Hey, Nick. Hey, good afternoon. How are you? Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you for joining us. And I got to ask you, I mean, COVID-19 is still ravaging our communities. And, you know, we're, we're still dealing with variants and vaccines or the lack thereof. So I got to ask you, what has your quarantine life been like? And have you developed any unique habits live and direct for Miss Rona? Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, I mean, it's been a crazy year, you know, I'm a, I'm a father. And so the kids go back and forth between me and their mother's house. And it's been pretty stressful because we, you know, uh, we got limited bandwidth sometimes and everybody's trying to, you know, the kids are trying to get on Zoom and, and we're trying to be on Zoom for these phone calls and for work. And one of the things I, I did get in, to a lot more is because of how much time we would just spend, you know, inside. Was, I got into a simple practice where uh, I, I live a half mile from the, the main road. I live way out in the country. And so I once a day, you know, when I'm home in Porcupine, then I, I walk to the road and back once a day. And that's been a good relief to just get out of the house. That's uh, nice. and, 
And hopefully if the kids are in a good enough mood, they'll, they'll walk right along with me too. So, uh, and sometimes when we need to have space with each other, sometimes they walk to the road themselves uh, and, I, and I walk separate. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So let me ask you, Nick, are there any new skills that you've acquired during the Rona? Just in case we enter into the apocalypse, and I'm pretty sure we might already be there. I just want to know what you're bringing to the table. New skills. Oh, man. I, well, I never got good at cooking during this time. Um, but board games are on their way back. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and my poker game has gotten way better. Um, yeah. I've also gotten really good at all the different kinds of versions of Monopoly. But prior to the quarantine, we didn't play that many board games. And so we were we're jamming at board games at the house. And so there's more, it seems like more time around the table talking yeah, um, okay. because there's like, what, what else is there to do too? So uh, those are some of the skills I gained, I guess, in the process. That's fantastic. That is absolutely fantastic. I'm really glad that you're here. Thank you for joining us. And I know that when you and I first met, we actually met at a panel for Netroots Nation talking about what movement building needed to look like in this very, very tumultuous period. How are we doing on the whole movement building front? <laughs> are we getting anywhere? I mean, how, how might you update the conversation since we talked last? You know, I think I would say... It seemed like we started getting a little momentum and, you know, organizing has always been about building relationships and building trust. And it's been really challenging to not only build trust, but to maintain trust in a period of time in which we're very isolated. Mm -hmm. So uh, to me, as like a, you know, old school organizer, you know, sitting around and having coffee and building relationships with people, it's been really challenging to build new relationships. Um, so I've tended to gravitate towards old relationships and maintain, maintaining and focusing on those. And I've spent less time probably building new relationships during this period of time. But I would say that I think that both of those things have been catalytic. So, you know, being able to lean in and go deeper into relationships that I already had um, and exploring the building of new relationships. But I think it's kind of been like a roller coaster. I felt like when COVID started sort of going away, it felt like we're like, oh, hey, wait a second. We're going to have this convening. We're going to do this action. <laughs> yeah. We're going to do these things that catalyze us forward. Um, some of which are like, whoa, we pulled back the reins on that and said, hey, how do we still maintain momentum without putting our people and movement and community at, at risk, especially our elders and our children? So so I feel like it's a little bit like we pumped the brakes a little bit. That's the way it's felt in, uh, in, in some ways. Listen, I agree. And, I, you know, as often happens, especially after election years, people kind of are scrambling to try to figure out what to do, right? I feel like election years are years that people are just grinding, right? And we're grinding. I mean, we're grinding all the time, but election years are unique in some ways because we're grinding and it's almost like we're pushing this boulder up a mountain. Then when we get to the top of it, right, it's like, okay, wait, what are we supposed to be doing again? <laughs> so look, I, I have been following your case for a little while, and I want to say congratulations, first of all, on having your charges dropped recently. This is a huge deal. And Nick, I wanted you to catch our listeners up on what it was that you were charged for 
and why it matters. Yeah, absolutely. We can we can jump into that. It's kind of crazy. It's gotten more complex than that because the charges were dropped. I cut a deal with the prosecutor, and then the prosecutor actually pulled back pulled back oh. on the whole deal. Oh. So all of the charges are actually back, um, oh. which I'll so I'll I'll bring this uh, this whole thing up to speed here. Uh, the the context is important, right? Like a, a protest and an action is an action. But what a lot of people don't know is that. The battle for the Black Hills and the stealing of the Black Hills and the violation of the treaties of 1851 and 1868 between the Lakota and the U.S. government is one of the longest legal battles in the U.S. court system in the history of the country. Wow. And, you know, we're talking about a land battle that has been going on since the 1800s. Um, Much of it has been taking place in the U.S. court system. And... We entered into peace treaties at a time of war. The Lakotas were successfully leading a war, winning a war against the United States government at the time that the 1868 treaty was signed. And it was a peace treaty that allowed for safe passage for uh, settlers across our territory. And we made peace at that time. But then the Black Hills gold rush was discovered. Uh, gold was discovered in the Black Hills. Last Black Hills gold rush happened. As quickly as those treaties were made, they were violated. Those led to a whole bunch of Indian wars that led, you know, went from the 1860s all the way into 1890. And and then the legal battles ensued. And in 1980, there was, in fact, a Supreme Court decision that was made. And uh, Supreme Court justice ruled in 1980 that the, the stealing of the Black Hills and the violation of the 1851 and 1868 treaties were one of the most gross violations of the U.S. Constitution in the history of this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, they didn't return any land to us. They offered us a settlement for pennies on the dollar, and, which was about $100 million at the time. And our people uh, unanimously have said no to accepting any penny for the Black Hills to this day and said that this was never about the return uh, of money to our settlement money, but it was about uh, return of the land to the people. Mm-hmm. And so my whole life I've grown up in meetings because I've come through, I was raised up in family of organizers, you know, since I was in diapers, learning about and sitting in meetings about the return of the Black Hills because it's a sacred place to our people. And so when you fast forward to the year of COVID, and you fast forward to the uprising that happened after the death of George Floyd, you know, we as Lakotas and us here at Indian Collective and the Indigenous Peoples Movement, we wanted to do something in which we could stand in solidarity with the Black Liberation Movement, but also standing in our own identity and our own power and also bringing our struggle to light at this time that this was happening. And so whenever then-President Trump announced that he was going to come to the Black Hills, and that he was going to come to Mount Rushmore to try to, you know, rally up his base. And he was going to do so without consultation and without the consent of the tribal leaders from our region. We said, not in our lands, not in our Black Hills. Mm-hmm. We're going to make a stand here. And so we organized our people um, in a grassroots fashion. And, you know, we blockaded the road to Mount Rushmore uh, on the day that Pre- President Trump was coming to, to our lands. Um, and severely disrupted the rally that he had at Mount Rushmore. And remember, this was this was a good you know two weeks after he went to Tulsa. 
Mm-hmm. And so he was on this sort of racial blasphemy tour that he was on. Oh, gosh. And so, you know, that was the context in which we blockaded the road. It was a very peaceful protest in prayer. And almost immediately, you know, the National Guard was, when the National Guard was basically sitting there, they were on site within 30 minutes. Mm. Um, and the context is really important, too, because you think of the state of South Dakota was one of these states that was, you know, they were deniers of the, that there was a pandemic happening. That's right. They weren't doing mask mandates. Meanwhile, the nine tribes in South Dakota started setting up roadblocks, limiting access for outsiders to the reservation to protect our elders. And on two different occasions, the governor, Christy Nome of South Dakota, wanted to call in the National Guard to try to remove these blockades and have a standoff with Native people. Mm. Um, And so there's a cumulative of all of these different things happening. And, you know, when we thought about the Black Hills and we thought about the Indigenous people's struggle in this moment in history of this, this time of racial uprising, and we were watching Confederate flags come down, and we were watching statues being toppled, we thought there as Native people, what does this mean for what does this mean for us as Native people? What does social justice, racial justice look like for us? Mm-hmm. And when we thought about the struggle for the Black Hills mm-hmm. and the fact that Mount Rushmore was the symbol of white supremacy, where these white men were literally carved into a mountain, into a sacred site of our people, that we had to make a stand and recognize that no statue could be toppled in the situation. That the only way to achieve racial justice and social justice for indigenous people is that we have to continue to popularize and fight for a movement that returns indigenous lands back into indigenous hands. Mm-hmm. And so July 3rd of last year was an opportunity to confront the U.S. government, to revive the fight for the Black Hills, and to also build and popularize a a narrative that already existed around the land back movement. And and it's a movement that's been building throughout indigenous communities. And so those were the cumulative things that led to the action on July 3rd of last year. Um, As a result, they wanted to target us. So there was 21 of us that were arrested in a nonviolent direct action of civil disobedience. Um, Everybody was given misdemeanor charges, but they decided to kind of come after me and they charged me with four different felonies, two different a simple assaults on a police officer, uh, another charge that was grand theft, and another charge that was robbery for allegedly stealing a police shield uh, and crossing out police and writing land back on it. And then there was other misdemeanor charges, all stacking up to about 17 years in prison. Wow. Um, those were the charges that I've been fighting this entire time. We're seeing kind of crackdowns on protest happening across the country. And as I was reading about the backstory to, you know, how these charges were identified against y'all, it sounds like actually the police came in pretty aggressive to a nonviolent, peaceful protest. And actually two deputies kind of testified, right, that people were really chill until they showed up. I see this as a trend of like, criminalizing protest across the country, whether it be, you know, the new laws that were passed in Florida um, and other kind of places where we're seeing there's a kind of an escalation, right, against those of us who 
do what we can, right? Put our bodies on the line to make sure that our communities are protected. How are you all looking at this moving forward? Are you concerned about this kind of heightened level of scrutiny? What do you think it comes from and where do you think it's kind of rooted in? I mean, on a philosophical level, it comes down to two different ways of building power. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the capitalism and transnational corporations and the U.S. government, they want to consolidate power and control. You know, they want the liberty of talking about free speech um, while at the same time limiting it as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And that we have to recognize that we are in a moment where, you know, since 2016, there's over 300 new laws in this country that have been introduced to limit free speech and to, uh, as, a, as a, an attack on people's right to protest. Mm-hmm. Um, they have been criminalizing people who have been taking a stand, you know, all throughout, whether it be black, indigenous, people of color throughout this whole country. And that's a very targeted approach is because they're afraid of the power that's being built. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're afraid of the liberation that we're fighting for. Right. And I think that we have to, we have to be very strategic, you know, when they did things like call highways and pipeline easements critical infrastructure, and therefore interfering with critical in infrastructure is then a threat to national security. Mm. Well, then what they say is freedom fighters, frontline organizers and activists are now terrorists. And it, it opens the door for that to happen. And that's why you're seeing... You know, my story is just one story, but you can, there's a dime a dozen stories all across this country about organizers and activists who are being targeted and, and, and prosecuted for standing up for their lands and their people, supposedly rights that are protected to us by the Constitution of the United States. And so it's an abuse of the Constitution itself. And it's an abuse of, of the rights that, you know, supposedly we're all afforded to us um, as citizens of this country. And so, I think that we have to be thinking very proactively about how we organize to combat those laws because what's happening is those are laws that sort of change the conditions in which we organize, the conditions in in which our pathway is to liberation. Um, And I think that we have to fight these. I mean, I think the reality is that we have to go on the offensive. That's what we're doing in my case. You know, we... We, we cut a deal with the prosecutor's office because the movement backed the prosecutors into the corner. Mm-hmm. And some people don't realize this, but last year, the attorney general for the state of South Dakota did a hit and run and killed somebody. I saw this story. Yo! Continue, in- continue. <laughs> it's insane. The highest ranking law enforcement officer in the state of South Dakota Killed somebody on the side of a road, no jail time, yeah. gets a misdemeanor. And I'm over here still to this day facing 17 years in prison for a peaceful Yo. blockade. Yo. In, in a state where Native people are 10 times more likely to be jailed or incarcerated than a white person in the state of South Dakota. That's 10 right. times. That's we're Less than 10% of the population in South Dakota, but we represent 51% of all the people incarcerated in South Dakota. And this is insane what's happening here. And so in a state where all that's happening, meanwhile, the prosecutors overcharge, you know, they create all these charges and then the movement mobilized. And that's where I just want to take the opportunity. I mean, we had people all across this country calling 
the Pennington County Prosecutor's Office. We had people throughout this nation writing letters of support, donating because they saw the blasphemy what was happening. And all of you, you know, some of you that are listening to this show uh, mobilized your people in, in support of our cause. And so I want to I want to say thank you for that, because that's what actually pressured the prosecutor to come to our door and offer mm-hmm. a deal mm-hmm. and a deal in which all of the charges would be eventually dropped. I would participate in a pretrial diversion program and do community service. And so I agreed to all of those things. But when I talked to the media about these charges being dropped, and I framed it as that this is a way in which the movement built power and that the prosecutor fell back in the corner and then came to us with a deal, um, then the prosecutor backed out on their uh, agreement that they had made with us. This is a mess. And dragged it on for many months. So in June um, or early July of this year, what we ended up doing is we filed for motions to dismiss based on three counts, prosecutorial misconduct for the prosecutor engaging in in vindictive prosecution in my case. Mm -hmm. We also filed for constitutional violation to a right to a speedy trial because they've been dragging this out for so long, you know, to hang something over my head. To try to limit my ability to, to to organize, to travel, to have all of my conditions of release. Because most people don't realize this. When you've taken action and then you are jailed, there's conditions of your release that you have to follow by until you are, until the charges are dropped. So a constitutional violation for a right to a speedy trial. And the last is a constitutional violation of a right to free speech. Mm. So we have filed motions, and anyone any one of these accounts could go back and drop the charges. Yeah. We're actually going to court on September 27th of this oh, month. Wow. Oh wow. Um to hear if the judge is going to dismiss charges based on these these violations that were done by the prosecutor's office. What can people do in the lead up to help support you and to help support the team? Right now, I mean, I think we're still sort of kicking the can around that. Of course, our lawyers tell us they, they want us to keep quiet as possible, which I struggle with. I, I'll be I honest, know, as, I a, as, as an organizer, I'm like, your voice is your power. That's right. Um, but also, if nobody knows what's happening to you, can't nobody stand up for you? Absolutely. Yeah, no. So I, I think our team is trying to put out some stuff on social media, hopefully by the end of this week. To just let folks know what happened with the case because mm-hmm. the, the crazy thing was happened is, you know, everybody knew about the charges because of the White House press crew was here when the president was here. And then press followed it for a while. And so they knew about when the charges were dropped. But then when we came back and found, you know, we did do a press thing that said the charges weren't dropped. So, you know, information is one of the most important things um, you know, I think that some of the things that people can do is call the prosecutor's office in Pennington County and urge them to pull out of the case mm-hmm. and to drop the case. I think for a lot of people who see courageous fighters like yourself and like the folks at the NDN Collective, they might think to themselves, oh my God, I could never do that, right? So I'm hoping you can just kind of talk about how did you get into political work? Certainly you didn't fall from the sky this way, right? So 
talk to people a little bit about how you got into this work and how you get to where you are today. Yeah, I mean, I think that for me, it's been a, I mean, I'm lucky enough to come from from generations of folks that have been fighting for for freedom and liberation. You know, my mother was part of the civil rights organization uh, that was forming on Pine Ridge in the early 1970s that first invited the American Indian movement to come mm-hmm. to Pine Ridge. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was a civil rights attorney who was representing the American Indian movement uh, in some of its very first cases that it had were actually on the streets of Minneapolis against the Minneapolis Police Department because the American Indian movement was being sort of formed on Franklin Avenue area of Minneapolis. You know, they, they took the script out of the what was happening in, in Oakland, right there in Oakland with the Black Panther Party. So they started yeah. policing the police to protect their people. And so when the American Indian movement came to Pine Ridge in the 1970s, it led to the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973. And so that's when my parents met. They met amidst of the uprising and, and the revolution of indigenous people. So I was raised up in that way. And, and a lot of uh, questions, it wasn't so much asked to me when I was a kid of like, what are you going to be when you grow up? But it was more about what are you going to do? That's right. It's a very different question. You know, what are you going to be when you grow up? And what are you going to do, you know, for your lands, for your people? And I think I, I found myself intrigued of understanding. And I think that one of the things that informed my uh, fight is, is something that was pretty traumatic to happen to me at, at a young age. And, you know, when I was about three and a half years old, I was uh, sitting in a van outside of Sioux Falls State Penitentiary. My parents had organized a protest about for the wrongful imprisonment of political prisoners. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking out of the window and watching my mom speak and my dad was running around plugging speakers and what have you. Everybody was happy at first, you know, and, and then all of a sudden this entire protest was surrounded by cops. Mm-hmm. The cops attacked all of the organizers of, of the protest, started beating them up. Um, in the van I was in, a uh, tear gas canister landed in the van that I was in. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Uh, I filled up the van with tear gas and... My parents had rushed me to the hospital. And the next thing I remember, it was like I could barely open my eyes. Mm-hmm. My, my mom was wearing her hair down. My, my face was all puffy mm. um, from the tear gas. And I was almost killed that day. I don't have a memory from before that. I don't have any childhood memories from before that day. Mm-hmm. And so very early on, I guess I realized something was wrong. And what I guess about this journey is it's... It's not about courage, it's about necessity. Mm. You know, when the very survival of your people are at stake and the very survival of yourself are at stake, it's not just courage. It's we're reacting to necessity. And what we need to do is we need to make sure that people are not being complacent with the reality of that what's happening in the world is that your actually lives are at stake. Your children and grandchildren's lives are at stake here. And that will invoke action. And the movement will provide the courage. You know, the songs, the movement, what we do collectively will provide the courage and, and, and keep pushing to us. Because we don't just walk around with courage every day. You know, mm-hmm. that, that is constantly something we fuel and feed off of each other's energy. But the necessity for taking action in these moments is one of the most important things that we need to be doing. Mm. You know, There's a lot happening in the world right now from the border in Texas where Haitian 
asylum seekers are being chased with horses and whips and then being put on planes and deported back to Haiti to climate disasters, right? To climate and environmental destruction. It's easy to feel overwhelmed. What advice do you have for people who are feeling overwhelmed by how much work there is to do? What advice do you have for them to keep going? I'm not really, I'm really bad at advice. Um, (laughs) I mean, wise words. (laughs) I I always tell everybody, you know, when you're in those moments when you're trying to figure out what you're trying to do, whoever you believe are elders Mm -hmm. in your lives, if you go to the elders and children and you spend time with the elders and the children, you'll find the answers you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And you probably won't even find them through intellectual debates with them. Mm. but you will find the reason you're fighting for by talking to those kids. And you'll figure out that if you ask elders for support, and no matter what movement you are in, they love to be asked Mm. to be included and they have wisdom to give, but we don't ask them anymore. We don't ask them. So when you're feeling like gut wrenched and you're heavy and you're hard, go ask elders for guidance, humble yourself to be able to be in a place, even if it's elders, you may not be aligned with politically on everything. Mm-hmm. But there's a power in that wisdom and the intergenerational exchange that happens there uh, is powerful and it's healing. And so I encourage folks to do that. And in the times that I have felt the hardest, I found myself flocking to both elders and to children. And somewhere in there, shit makes sense. You know, <laughs> it <laughs> makes totally. the world make sense in those moments. <laughs> And just like that, it's time for our weekly roundup of all the things Lady just ain't gonna do this week. Number one, Haitian immigrants, whips, and horses in Texas. So by now, you've likely seen the images out of Del Rio, Texas, with an overwhelming number of Haitian asylum seekers crowded under a bridge near the border. The images are shocking. Rangers on horses unleashing what looks to be whips, on people seeking safety. It's hard to unsee. Police on horses with whips chasing Black people is eerily reminiscent of enslavement, and it's intended to be so. That, coupled with the failed immigration policy of the United States, has made this a verifiable disaster. The Biden administration, undoubtedly cowering to the threats they're anticipating in the midterm elections about being soft on immigration, has been sending these refugees back to Haiti on airplanes, the same Haiti that is in political and environmental turmoil. It's a complete and total shit show, and the blood is on the hands of this administration. Now, I told y'all on the pod a few months ago when Vice President Harris advised immigrants, do not come here, it sets the tone for the kinds of atrocities we're seeing right now. Even the U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti, Daniel Foote, resigned this week, citing inhumane policy on behalf of the United States. In a statement he released, he said, I will not be associated with the United States' inhumane, counterproductive decision to deport thousands of Haitian refugees and illegal immigrants to Haiti, a country where American officials are confined to secure compounds because of the danger posed by armed gangs to daily life. Our policy approach to Haiti remains deeply flawed, 
and my policy recommendations have been ignored and dismissed when not edited to project a narrative different than my own. And this close to midterms, it's likely that immigrants and immigration will continue to be used as pawns on the political chessboard. Now, for those of you looking to help support relief efforts, please go visit Haitian Bridge Alliance at HaitianBridge.org. And then get to lighten those phones up for the president and vice president and your damn Congress people, because this is completely unacceptable. Next thing lady don't like this week is police reform officially off the table. So speaking of shit show, it was announced this week that negotiations have formally ceased on police reform, spurred by a rejection of the U.S. Senate of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. This bill was passed by the House as per usual. Now, y'all are aware that a bipartisan committee came together to try and come to a compromise to get police reform done this year in the wake of Floyd's murder. Well, they couldn't come to agreements that would have gotten this done. And word out on the street is that it's officially dead and won't be pushed through. Deemed much too risky for Democrats who are trying to hold on for dear life in the upcoming midterm elections. Now, Tim Scott, Republican senator from South Carolina, opposed a ban on chokeholds, the same kind of chokeholds that killed George Floyd. He opposed getting rid of qualified immunity, the doctrines that shield police from being held accountable when they commit crimes in our communities. And he opposed banning no-knock warrants, like the one that killed Breonna Taylor in the middle of the night. Republicans are hell-bent on killing everything that smells like change. And meanwhile, Democrats seem scared of their own shadow, especially when it comes to policing, despite the big, bold talk about it in 2020. 2022 is going to be real rough, y'all, mostly because Democrats haven't shown that they're willing to boldly govern. And with rampant voter suppression spreading like wildfire across the country, midterm elections are looking like a dumpster fire. I'm not at all saying to despair. But what I am saying is get ready to work really the fuck hard next year. And in the meantime, light a fire under the asses of this party while it still has the power we gave them. If Republicans are hell bent on not fucking governing, make sure Democrats can't sleep until and unless they govern. Now, y'all got me all hyped up on here. So let me just come on and talk about what we do want more of this week, though. So first thing is. Okay, girl, I guess. Bring on fall. I mean, I don't really mean that because me, myself, I'm really a summer kind of girl. But truth be told, this summer was not as hot girl as I'd hoped. So a fall wind down and transition into hibernation, it sounds about right to me. This week, we celebrate the fall equinox, which means the days are just now starting to get shorter and the nights are just now starting to get longer. I'm still not fucking with pumpkin spice anything, but I am looking forward to my favorite holiday, Halloween, which also happens to be my homegirl and hand grenades birthday. So break out the chunky sweaters and the leggings and the leg warmers. And fuck yeah, we wear leg warmers. Don't get it twisted. Good books and hot cocoa. It's about that time, y'all. We moving from Blanco to Reposado, if you catch my drift. And I'm here for it. <laughs> Other things Lady Loves this week is minding the business that pays you. So, lovelies, I thought I would give you an update on where things are for Lady personally. And look, I'm making it. Been purging, reorganizing, making peace with the rate and pace of change. Now, I posted on Facebook recently about codependency and addiction. 
as there's some loved ones in my life that are dealing with addiction stuff. And I, in particular, am in a lot of questions for myself about how to love someone with an addiction and not get caught up in the collateral damage that addiction brings. Well, look, some folks forgot to mind the business that pays them and made some assumptions that I was talking about Malachi, my ex. Now, listen, y'all, Malachi's not who the fuck I was talking about. Malachi's not an addict, but both of us love people with addiction challenges. That includes family, friends, and the like. Now, I'm putting that out there to remind folks that you need to be real careful about mistaking Facebook for friendships. Now, I asked for resources around codependency, but what I did not ask for was for people to get all up in the business that doesn't pay them, which is my life. Now, look, if you need to know who I'm talking about, you need to be in my close circle. And frankly, the Security Council is closed to new members. It has been for quite a while now. But more than that, be careful with your assumptions and operationalizing those assumptions. Now, I don't know why you would spend time playing sleuth, but if that's your tendency, what do you think you're going to do about it? Now, I asked for the support I needed, and that list did not include any of that. So in any case, remember to mind the business that pays you. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. Where can people find you on the socials and how can they follow all the good work that you're doing? Absolutely. So um, the funny thing is I didn't have social media until about a year ago. That's so what's I'm up. A, I'm, a late, I'm a late comer, but I do have a Twitter and it's at Nick Tilson. Um, I spout off on Twitter every once in a while. Love that. Love um, but also Indian Collective has a pretty powerful platform. And so at Indian Collective on, on Instagram, uh, Facebook and Twitter, and you can follow Indian Collective's work on both of those places. And then everything on my own Twitter is is actually authentically me tweeting that stuff. Indian Collective is the collective voice of the Indian Collective. And so there's a lots of ways to follow us on, on those on those platforms as well. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. And that's it for Lady Don't Take No, but I will be back here every single Friday morning to accompany you where there's a chance you might be commuting again. We appreciate you joining us and please, let's keep the conversation going. Tell us what's on your mind, tell us what you like, and tell us what you ain't gonna take no more of. On Twitter, we're at Lady Take. On Insta, we're at Lady Don't Take No Pod. We are also on Facebook at Lady Don't Take No Podcast by Alicia Garza. We post ways to do something about things you hear on this show all over our social media. So if we got you amped up today, check out the socials to find out how you can take action. And let's give a special shout out to Jahari Farrar for making sure that people get what they need from our socials. We appreciate you. Please subscribe and write us a review and let the people know what you heard here today. Our incredible producer is Phil Circus. Our fantastic theme is by Latirix. This pod is supported by the Black Futures Lab. And me, I'm your host, Alicia Garza. Remember, don't come here is not a sensible or humane immigration policy, and neither is whips and horses. 
2022 is going to be a fucking bloodbath unless somebody can figure out how to win real things for real people and real quick. Mind the business that pays you. And almost all the time, it ain't somebody else's life. And out with the pumpkin spice and in with the spirits of the ghost and the liquor kind. <laughs> That's right. I said it because lady don't take no. Lady don't take no shit. don't respect the sister. Walk around like a woman. She won't speak. Let's something worse. Singing don't play. The girl take herself so seriously. People stare curious. She got a natural way. Her hips sway furiously. Never luxurious. Love y'all. Like the-